Welcome back to our podcast, Regulation Matters, A Clear Conversation. Once again, I'm your host, Lyon Dempsey. I am the current uh, Chief Compliance Officer with Rickabenny Associates Family Dentistry here in North Carolina and Virginia, and I'm also CLEAR's president for the 2022-2023 year. As many of you are aware, the Council on Licensure Enforcement and Regulation, or CLEAR, um, this is a, an association of individuals, agencies, and organizations that comprise the international community of professional and occupational regulation. This podcast is an opportunity for you to hear about important topics in our regulatory community. Joining us today for today's episode is Paul Leboy. He is the manager, director, and regulatory content and editor of Ascend Magazine for Thentia. We thank Thentia for being CLEAR's premier technology partner, and we're glad to have you with us here today. I'm glad to be here. I'm a fan of the podcast. That's great to hear. Um, we're super uh, excited to talk to you today about regulatory news and current themes in professional licensing. So you serve um, as Thentia's Managing Director of Regulatory Content and Editor of Ascend Magazine. So can you tell us a little bit about Thentia and Ascend and, and how they relate to regulation? Yeah, sure thing. Thanks, Lyon, and thanks again for the privilege of being here. Um, well, first of all, to start with Thentia, uh, Thentia is a cloud-based licensing software solution that's designed exclusively for the needs of regulators. It's got a configurable, low-end uh, solution that address an agency's unique regulatory requirements. We're in Canada, US. We also serve some regulators increasingly in Europe. Um, and one of the unique things about the product is it's for regulators by regulators. This is the first software solution to be designed by regulators. And as such, we have a wealth of information and insight on uh, all the nuances of regulation because we have a lot of that regulatory talent in-house. And we've also cultivated all these relationships with regulatory leaders all around the world. Um, so that leads directly into Ascend Magazine. Part of the reason we created it was identifying that all of these connections exist uh, across the world of regulation, licensing, policy, and digital government. So we want to discuss what those mean to stakeholders, to the public, to government, and to regulators themselves, and to look at it from a sort of uh, interdimensional lens across people, process, uh, technology, um, and also to look at uh, how jurisdictions relate to and compare with one another, um, and how regulatory issues and challenges and opportunities and, and also innovations, how they arise and how they manifest in, in public di discourse. And so like in, in headlines in in academia and amongst uh, regulatory conversations happening, you know, in venues like, uh, like CLEAR and, and associations and whatnot. And uh, I'll just add that we also have a podcast, Ascend Radio, where um, I mainly focus on speaking with leaders uh, in regulation from uh, all around the world. So that's uh, that's uh, Thentia and Ascend in a nutshell. Excellent. Well, I know I think over the last couple of years, uh, you, you've been pouring over news related to regulation and, and professional licensing um, and, and providing from that weekly roundups of the top stories, as well as annual reviews of, of licensure news. So what are some of the most prevalent themes that, that you've come across so far? Yeah, definitely. Um, the, the one that jumps to mind, and, and you know, we're coming off just having 
reviewed and assessed all the major themes in 2022, uh, sort of uh, whittling those down into a top five themes. Uh, but the ones that I saw in 2021 as well, um, and I'm seeing in 2023 are obviously labor shortages, in particular healthcare labor shortages, um, staff shortages amongst healthcare providers were a top patient concern in the US and the situation in Canada has become a full-blown crisis. You know, there's millions currently without a family doctor and there's patients waiting hours or traveling far from home for medical treatment. Um, we even have several provincial governments here that are working with regulatory authorities now to streamline licensing processes uh, in order to help international prof professionals and even those wishing to practice in other provinces to get to work faster. Um, the, the whole labor shortage conversation is sort of intertwined with a, another key theme, you know, licensing reform, licensing portability, uh, as we see these labor shortages plaguing various sectors above and beyond healthcare, um, states have sought ways to streamline licensing. And, you know, you guys at CLEAR will, will know this well, uh, but to streamline licensing to attract skilled workers to their states. Uh, it's a trend that continued across 2022. Um, Del just a few off the top of my head, Delaware became the 17th state to enter the interstate counseling compact. And a number of other states uh, have joined the compact as well, from North Carolina to New Hampshire, uh, Mississippi, Alabama, you know, states across the spectrum. Um, Connecticut adopted the Interstate Medical Licensure Compact, as well as the Psychology Interjurisdictional Compact uh, that was back in October. Um, and some states have moved to recognize credentials obtained in other states through a universal licensure legislation. There's at least four states that had universal licensing uh, activities on their legislative agendas in 2022. Um, further, Louisiana's Senate approved a bill that requires certain licensing boards to recognize occupational licenses and work experience from other states. And um, in Ohio, the, the House approved its own universal licensing law, which passed the Senate in June. Um, and in, in Michigan, universal licensure legislation was introduced in the summer. Now, a, a few states have been quiet amidst all this, but by and large, there are regulatory movements across most states. Some calling for the expansion of, and in many cases, the, the deregulation, not necessarily of, of professions, but of the quote unquote red tape, you know, it's a mantra amongst some governors, right. uh, the, the scaling back of that. And then I'd say beyond you know, those, those two, we've seen a lot of activity around cryptocurrency regulation, particularly in the last two months, you know, particularly since the FTX explosion. Um, and then you know, ever since the pandemic, uh, you know, uh, cyber attacks and uh, sensitivities around cyber attacks, cybersecurity is a, is a growing issue that continues to grow. Um, this year, this past year, saw the average cost of a data breach in the U.S. rise to 9.44 million, uh, and the global average per uh, per data breach uh, at about 4.35 million. Um, so, cyber attacks are an ongoing concern, and they're, the more digital we get, the more remote we get, they're not going anywhere. Um, 
And then I'd say uh, cannabis regulation. It's a, you know, as you'll know, it's a bit of an unruly beast state to state. I think what will be interesting there is seeing uh, longer term comparative analysis. Uh, you know, we have all these states trying different moves, regulating in different ways. Um, after a year, after five years, what is that telling us about the uh, comparative impacts, the consequences, benefits, economic impacts, and, and whatnot? So those are the things that I keep seeing coming up. Yeah, those seem to be, you know, right on par with, with what, you know, we're seeing as far as, uh, you know, most recently we were in Savannah for our, our mid-year meeting and winter symposium. And, and those were all similar topics that, that were, I, I heard it like kind of a, the, for lack of a better term, the, the water cooler conversation, uh, the stuff that was happening, you know, away from program or, or committee meetings um, that, you know, everybody has these concerns. I guess, are there any, um, you know, particular insights or takeaways that, that you're, you know, could, could kind of share with us that you found from your coverage? Yeah, sure. Um, I mentioned I've spoken with lots of um, notable leaders in regulation from all around the world because, you know, while it is always, you know, nice to look within our own borders, within the U.S., within Canada, um, we find that, you know, country to country, there's a lots of, there's a lot of commonalities that, uh, that, that we can find uh, when we get to larger statistics and larger sampling size. Uh, I really enjoyed speaking with Dr. Marie Bismarck. She's an Australian doctor, lawyer, academic, you know, a, a true tri triple threat in, in the world of, of knowledge and, and regulatory possibility. She's done tons of research over the years. Um, and they've confronted a lot of um, challenging facts, too, that, um, you know, don't always make it into common uh, discussions, like the fact that female health practitioners uh, are twice as likely to die by suicide as women in all other occupations. Um, and uh, they've found, or she and her research groups have found that um, complaints to regulators tend to cluster around a, a rel relatively small group of practitioners. For example, you know, staggering statistic, fewer than 5% of health practitioners account for about 50% or more of all the complaints to regulators. Um, there's a, so there's a small group. This is an, another theme that's been popping up again and again. There's a small group who receive recurring complaints. Um, and uh, Dr. Bismarck believes it's important to identify them early, not just in order to protect patients, but also to try and support practitioners back into safe practice where, where possible. Uh, I should underscore the size of the studies that she and her groups have done. She's collected data from over 700,000 health professionals across 15 different health professions. And then just to get further into those numbers, of those, only about a thousand were the subject of sexual misconduct notifications. And in many of those cases, um, the, the, the complaint wasn't made by the patient themselves, but instead a fellow health practitioner that became aware of the sexual misconduct and then notified the regulator. Um, I've also had some interesting conversations with um, David Benton, who's the CEO uh, you'll probably be familiar with, uh, Clear, of the National Council of State Boards of Nursing. He, uh, right. he, he talked a lot about 
um, you know, as well, intersecting with what Dr. Bismarck was saying, how technology uh, is being increasingly used or there's possibilities around using technology for complaints handling, um, you know, about in medicine, for example, about 1.1% 1 .1 of the licensed population has a complaint against them. Some are going to be frivolous and others are going to be very serious. Um, but, you know, with the strides technology is, is making, the regulator will have more opportunities to focus on those ones that are serious and also treat the others in a, you know, sensitive way. Um, he, the, he and the um, NCSBN uh, have provided funding to colleagues uh, in the UK who did a, a really interesting international study um, looking at Australia, the UK and Texas to see how AI could be used to screen complaints that were coming in. Um, and one of the major findings they had from that whole exercise, which is worth reading about in, in depth, is that uh, is the need to use technology to analyze the level of a particular risk that a particular discipline presents to the public. And then to based on that list, determine what the appropriate regulatory intervention should be within that uh, discipline. Um, so well, lots of fruit from, from those conversations, but I should also mention that Anna Vandergaag, uh, a, a researcher out of uh, an academic out of the UK, who was involved in that um, AI uh, study as well, has uh, also produced studies that have shown us that the majority of complaints to health professional regulators over, over the years have resulted in little to no regulatory action. This is spanning, um, spanning jurisdictions too. Um, and she also reiterated that regulatory data points to a small number of high-risk individuals uh, and, and culture and context as uh, the key to maintaining safety. So, you know, in terms of common threads and common themes, um, you know, the, the it often seems to boil back down to complaints. How are we handling complaints? How are we managing complaints? And how are we approaching complaints uh, in, a, in a sensible and, and data-informed uh, way. So th those would be among the interesting, um, you know, conversations uh, and, and takeaways that, that I found. It's, it's very interesting. So I, I guess, what do you make of emergency license reform initiatives uh, and laws that, you know, we've, we've seen from state to state? Um, I, 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 it's hard for me to have a, a take on it, but, you know, I look a lot at how various others are responding to it and, and what states are doing. I'm, I'm really in, encouraged and fascinated by Utah um, and, and the work it's done, the very dedicated work it's done on licensing reform. Um, they've created a, a law called licensing by endorsement, which says that if they have similar regulations to another state for a particular profession that instead of having someone redo all their licensure and go through the training and requirements again, they just endorse that license and the practitioner can start working. It's one of these uh, common sense, easy to do, like low tech the things um, that can happen to make 
uh, licensure and mobility a little bit easier. Um, also in Utah, licensing boards do not have authority to do licensing on their own. Instead, they are advisory to the division of professional licensure. Uh, you know, I, I take no stand on that, um, but it's, it's, a, it's definitely an interesting way of going about it. And it seems to be more the prevailing uh, trend. Um, they've also had a strong measure of creative thinking in how they've gone about figuring out which professions to, uh, to e evaluate for licensure reform uh, first. They've done impact-based assessments to basically uh, determine a proxy for harm. Like how many li licensees are there? How big is it in the economy? How many substantiated complaints are there against that application? Uh, and then they look at you know things like projected job openings into the future using data collected from Department of Workforce Services. So that gives them some sort of quantitative measure to say, okay, this is more important in the market and in the community, this is more likely to be important. Um, and then, you know, that's, you know, that's great talk, but they've been turning it into action, um, you know, in identifying what was going to be the a priority profession for review, they started with uh, looking at the fact that there's a high prevalence of mental illness, a high prevalence of suicides, especially among youth. Um, and that started to um, drive them towards, well, well, hey, maybe we need to look at, uh, you know, everything around counseling and mental health. Um, and then um, also like on the creative thinking side of things, instead of just looking at, you know, 15 licensed types, for example, plumbing, family therapist, cosmetologist, they sort of group them all together for a system level analysis on how to improve a profession, how to give the public more access to that profession and, uh, and possibly, you know, eventually reduce the cost to the public. Also, I should mention that, you know, the, in, in their data collection uh, and analysis exercises, they have found that it's, you know, we commonly throw around the term of 22 to 25% of professions in, in the U.S. Are, are regulated, you know, varying state by state. Um, well, they can say with a greater de degree of certainty, um, in Utah, uh, about 38% of professions are regulated in, in some way. Um, and you, that changes the, the, the calculus when you're looking at it and saying, okay, well, in, I mean, even still compared to the 5% it, it, it was in the days of yore, um, the, this uh, 20 to 25% is substantial at a quarter when it's 38% in, in a state, um, you know, that's where we get into the kind of rolling up the sleeves that, that, uh, that, that Utah is doing. Um, I think, you know, just to, to close off that point about my, my take on um, licensing reform, I think when, I think it's often like, sometimes there's bigger questions around, you know, licensing reform and as they relate to, for example, licensing compacts. I, I think of this because there was a recent item in the news about, I don't want to pick on Kansas here, but um, you know, Kansas has sort of, has been a little silent on 
um, whether it will join a, uh, a teacher licensure compact that's, uh, that's emerging. Um, and, and, and with some vocalizing that it's on the grounds of that Kansas teachers need to be meet Kansas licensing standards. So, you know, without judgment, it's, I think it just introduces these um, broader questions about what makes a Kansas teacher a Kansas teacher. Uh, is that important at the end of the day? Does it serve us when we have teacher shortages in the state and adjacent states? Why will right. out-of-state educators not do, you know, until they've been approved by the state? And then if we pull that question back and say, what does it mean to practice in any profession, in any jurisdiction? Is preserving the uniqueness holding us back? Is it offering value? What does it cost socially, economically? Can we establish some kind of common ground fulcrum of informed reason? And then from there, uh, say, th these rules make sense, or yes, we should, you know, on these grounds, join this licensure compact. So. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. And it's interesting to, to see that. Now, uh, I guess, are there, um, you know, any any research that maybe you're working on? Um, any interesting projects? Um, and, and basically, what can we hope to learn from that? Yeah, definitely. Um, well, I can tell you as, you know, head of uh, regulatory content um, here, um, we'll be producing some research outputs and uh, I don't want to uh, give it all the way at this point, but what I can tell you that we're working on is, you know, for example, comparative analysis uh, and mapping of priorities state to state uh, up here in Canada, province to province, um, and indeed around the world. Um, we know that a lot of the regulatory priorities um, for umbrella agencies and for smaller agencies will come down from uh, the, the, the governor, for example, um, in uh, Canada here by pro provincial order and then in other places around the world um, by how the state is mandating or, or approaching licensing. Um, giving giving some more def definition around that, and then looking at what it might mean state to state, province to province, nation to nation, um, but also uh, measuring regulatory performance, uh, as it were, um, and sort of indexing digital capabilities, um, and then also sort of providing informed guidance on how to achieve regulatory transformation. And then really, you know, something that excites me is kind of painting a picture of tomorrow's regulator, you know, tomorrow's, you know, if we flash forward with all the, the, the tools and technologies that are within our grasp, if we flash forward to 2030, 2040, um, what does this process that we're going through today that we've been going through for, you know, time immemorial of, um, you know, licensure in some fashion, um, what does it look like uh, 10 years from, from now? You know, um, so th those are some of the, the key questions that we're looking that will uh, result in some research outputs we'll be delivering. That's great. Well, you mentioned technology. And so um, it kind of brings me into my next kind of question. Um, you know, obviously we've touched on a little bit about 
um, just regulation itself, and that seems to be you know issues arising related to professional licensure. But is technology uh, as much of an issue, or is it becoming more of an issue? Um, kind of elaborate on that. Yeah, sure. Um, I think r regulation and the challenges around regulation these days are often a conversation uh, about technology, but never limited to. You know, I I you know come from a, a, a you know technology research background where we you know there's always a people process technology matrix in in uh, in in anything. So it's never as simple as just technology. But I do see technology as a as a critical linchpin, um, both from the side of where is it enabling us to make existing processes better for for one thing, um, you know, from as as simple as uh, paper based licensure is still happening in in certain par parts of, of of the country, mail based paper based licensure. Where I'm filling out a form to to get approved in 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 my job, uh, and then on the other side, what does technology enable us to do better with the insights that it can derive? All of the possibilities it presents once we um, once we fully more fully digitize government, and there are shiny examples out there of of where we can go. Um, I also think about technology as it relates to the aging exiting workforce, you know, with 40% uh, of um, those working in government, working in regulation, set to retire in the near future. How is technology going to enable regulators to manage and maintain that the throughput uh, the, the, from the approval of licenses to the management of complaints? Um, as nearly half of their workforce um, goes into retirement. Um, uh, is some of that answer in, in AI? Um, yeah, sure, I, I think so, in, in terms of its capacity to turn complaints management into something more manageable. Uh, but I think also when we look at the choke points of managing licensing, uh, they're often technology related, um, either in terms of, again, the possibilities it presents or where it is holding us back. Right on. Well, let me ask you this. I know we've talked about themes and things like that that you've kind of uncovered, but are there any other emerging areas of kind of new and developing regulatory activity that have kind of caught your attention, that kind of put on your radar right now? Um, yeah, sure. I'd say that uh, the, the number one thing is uh, probably unleashing the power of collective data that that we have, you know, no no state is an island, no province is an island, no nation with with the way worker mobility is. Um, I've alluded you know, earlier to the you know philosophy of like what makes a you know Kansas teacher a Kansas teacher, um, but I think the the fact of the matter is there the, the, there are with worker shortages there are need there, there is a need for for more uh, more mobility and well and I, some might say that doesn't sound like a you know technology or data question but it, it really is I mean we had an issue um, you know no names being named we had an issue a few years ago here in Canada where. Uh, a doctor had lost his license due to patient harm in one province 
Um, and then a, two years later, it popped up as a practicing licensed professional in another province. Um, now that, you know, it's 2023, but that sort of thing shouldn't be happening. There should be red flags, automated notifications, you know, complete visibility beyond jurisdiction of who we are entrusting with these rights to practice within, within these professions. Um, so, uh, you know, being connected with all these other jurisdictions across North America, around the globe, eventually, um, you know, having a uh, back to across all the this talk about complaints that we had, um, having a barometer of risk for licensed professionals, I envision that as something that um, data, the possibilities of data very much present. And then I think um, emulating some of the digital first practices that we see in, in the private sector where things like KPIs and OKRs and scorecards, I mean, these are just part of the, the daily language, uh, part of the equation of profitability and, uh, and, and results. Um, so, um, you know, and, and, and the beautiful thing about much of what I've discussed here is that it's all within our grasp right now um, it's just a matter of, you know, I, I, achieving that uh, transformation to sort of um, bring some of our, uh, you know, uh, government experience with, with government technology, with, with regulators uh, and their experience with one another, you know, up to a level that, that they deserve in, uh, in, in, in this year. Well, excellent. Well, I think... Uh... I think it's going to be great to talk about some of these uh, themes or you know as we move forward um, but getting you to share with us today i think has been very helpful um, you know as we're seeing things that are related to professional regulation um, and we look forward to clear's continued partnership with Entia. so uh, thank you paul and, and thank you for speaking with us today no problem i had a great time thanks a lot line and thanks everyone at clear absolutely it, it's been a, a pleasure so thank you for being here with us and and we'd love to continue this conversation away from the podcast. So here's something for our listeners to think about. Many conversations around licensing reform intersect with those around interstate licensing compacts. Are licensing compacts a useful way to extend public protection while improving license portability? And, and here's another question. Is your state or jurisdiction engaged in any notable licensing reform efforts? Are they needed? Will they be useful? Why or why not? We really greatly appreciate and thank our members for your feedback. We're currently rolling out our new communities platform and questions like these will be posted for our member feedback and for discussion. So we invite you to join the discussion there. I also wanna thank our listeners for tuning in for this episode. We'll be back with another episode of Regulation Matters, a clear conversation very soon. And if you're new to clear and to this podcast, please subscribe to us. You can find us on the Podbean or any of your favorite podcast services. And if you've enjoyed this podcast episode, please leave a rating or comment in the app. Those reviews help us to improve our ranking and make it easier for new listeners to find us. Feel free also to visit our website at www.clearhq.org for additional resources and a calendar of upcoming programs and events. Finally, I'd like to thank our Clear staff, specifically Stephanie Thompson, a content coordinator and editor for our program. Once again, I'm Lyne Dempsey, and I hope to be speaking to you again very soon.